Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, my friends. It's almost Thanksgiving here in the States, and I want to thank everyone who's listened, shared, or been a guest on this podcast. It's been a gift to me, and I'm grateful for it. This episode is no exception. You're going to hear a fascinating story. There's so much to tell. We could have made two more fantastic episodes out of it. One on how to convince your coworkers to leave a safe job and start a new company in a garage, and the other about how you buy your company back years after having gone public. Instead, we're telling the story of how to be truly disruptive while not losing your focus chasing too many ideas. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Mike Collins, so let's get started. Mike Collins is the founder, owner, president, and CEO of CEM Corporation, the leading provider of microwave solutions for the laboratory and life sciences marketplace. Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, Chris, it's a great pleasure, and I look forward to uh, the interview. So we're going to talk about the evolution of your company and the things that have made CEM successful. You and I spoke a little bit briefly before, and so there are a lot of lessons about how you do things differently, how that affects marketing, R&D, and even employee motivation and retention. So first of all, how did you get started? Well, first of all, I got a PhD in chemistry, so I had a technical background, and then I went to work for a large multinational chemical company where I spent time in R&D with them and then also in sales and marketing. So I had some a, a pretty good training and a pretty good background, but I always knew I wanted to start my own company. I always had that in my DNA. And fortunately, I met two people at this larger company, uh, two engineers, and was able to convince them to take off with me and start our own company. We actually started in a small garage that one of them owned because at that time I didn't have a, I was in an apartment and didn't have a garage. And um, so that's how we got started. And it was based on an initial product idea I had. And we kind of worked on it for a while on a moonlighting basis. And then again, I was able to convince them to, uh, to go full time into the company. And that's, that's where we started. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of great companies start in a garage. I guess it's because landlords aren't too keen about <laughs> microwave chemistry going on upstairs. Very true. And it, and uh, probably a tough thing, uh, they were a little bit older than I was. And I had to, I believed and I knew what I wanted to do, but I had to convince them to leave a, a safe job at a big company and uh, and do this. But I did. And once once we got started, it, uh, I think we we all felt like it was a good decision. Uh, we could make a whole podcast out of that, how you get two buddies to, to like leave their job for your idea. Yeah. But um, So disruption is an overused term, but you've managed to create a lot of solutions that are not incremental improvements. So let's talk about how you do that. I think part of it is it's sort of, again, it's sort of in my DNA, because if you're really going to disrupt something, uh, you've got to do something that people don't think is possible. Because I spend a lot of time with customers and uh, when we got our first product out, we were, you know, I would be spending time with customers and understanding what they were doing. But the ideas you're going to get from them are going to be more incremental. They're going to be, you know, asking you to do things that will make their job a little bit easier. But to disrupt, you've got to step back and really look at what they're doing and and think about how could it how could it be done totally differently or some major 
breakthrough on what they're doing. And so that's that's where, where I would come from. And then I would come back and talk to our engineers and scientists. And I, I knew what the initial response was going to be. And it was always the same in that that's impossible. That that can't be done. And that's why it was never done before. And what you then do is challenge your people, your engineers, and all of a sudden they start thinking about it. And it's it's amazing how in three or four weeks or a month, they'll come back all of a sudden with an idea on how, how it can be done. And all of a sudden they start to believe that maybe it is possible. And that's where it starts. And then if you're successful, it will then lead to something that truly is disruptive, that's beyond what uh, other people uh, had were, had really thought about. Um, it's not a uh, an easy process because sometimes it will be impossible. And so you'll come back with something that really isn't. But um, the it, it really has to start by thinking out of the box and proposing something that most people are going to think is totally impossible. Uh, and then you get people working on it and find a way to make it happen. Yeah. I'm almost laughing because on LinkedIn this morning, I saw that it looks like a New Yorker cartoon where somebody says something like, oh, that's a really innovative idea. Unfortunately, we're not going to fund it because no one's ever done it before. <laughs> Very true. One, one thing I'd add there that, and, and as we got larger too, we you know, had a lot of this debate. How do you come up with new product ideas? And the traditional ways you do it is you do these focus groups, you get customers together and ask them questions and set up focus groups. And we tried that for a while. And uh, in general, n none of that was really successful because it's, I, I kind of believe the Steve Jobs approach, your customers are not going to tell you what they are not going to give you the disruptive ideas that you should be working on because if they if they already knew about it, they'd already have those products. So you've really got to go beyond just going out and talking to your customers and thinking that's where your new products will come from. You've got to get to know what they're doing uh, almost better than they do. And and then you step back and have a, a full vision of how you could bring them something that, that, that they've never imagined. And that's the real, um, where you do the really exciting things and the really disruptive things. No, nobody ever told Steve Jobs that they wanted an iPhone, but he was able to visualize, you know, with his vision was able to conceive of something like that, that they had not thought about. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit more because I, I find it fascinating. And of course, every company I've been at, you know, they talk about voice of customer and what do they really want? And that's a step above making things just because we can. But what's the what's the bridge between you listening to your customers who are looking at their next problem? So, you know, their limited vision is this is the thing I need right now. How do you take that and then go back and think like what would really change how they do things? Like can you describe like what you are yeah. imagining in the future that they don't see? I think part of that is you've got to spend a lot of time with many different customers because uh, if you go and talk to a few customers, a few what, what you would consider to be key customers, you'll get input from them, but it's only their perspective and it, it tends to be somewhat limited. What I found is by getting out and talking to enough different people uh, and you really start to see things that they're not seeing because they're in their own company, they're doing their own thing. If you talk to five or six different people and different of the major players in that market, they'll have different perspectives. And all of a sudden, you can get a broader perspective at a higher level than any of them have. And 
then the light bulbs start to go on and you start to think out of the box because you're not constrained to do what they're doing. It could, it could be done very differently. And that's, that's what I found is successful. The other thing you need, and I guess I'm fortunate to have it, is you need people that are going to do that need to have enough technical background to really, to really get in pretty deep into what the customers are doing, but then also have a marketing and a selling perspective on things and a, a vision. And those are the two things you've got to have. And it's usually a single person that's involved in this. So you've got to have a person that's got those two things and can put them together. And that's, that's not normally the case. Normally you have strong technical people that really aren't visionaries or you have strong marketing and selling people that don't have enough technical depth to really um, get deep enough into what the customer is doing. So when you're talking to multiple customers and getting all their perspectives, is it sometimes bringing two ideas together? Like, oh, the thing that would fix that guy's problem and that woman's problem helps you see something different? Yeah, actually, it can very often be that where there's different things that already exist and you put them together in a unique way that nobody's thought about before. And and some of that is you're dealing with different markets or different customers. And so you'll see things they weren't that they're not aware of in another area. And that that can be a lot of what disruptive technology is. Again, I go back to Steve Jobs with the iPhone. Uh, he didn't really there's nothing in the iPhone, the original one they did that didn't stuff that didn't already exist, but they put it together in a unique way. Uh, and that's where some of your your most disruptive new products uh, come from. So talk a little bit about deciding which of those things you should work on at all, because certainly there, you must get ideas that you go, well, that either won't sell or the market's too small or it's too risky. How do you decide what you're going to do? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, uh, and, and it is important. Part of that is, again, spending time out in the market so you have a, a good feel for the market. But one of the it's, – and it is one of the big challenges of a, of a company that's really innovative. You, if you're not careful, you'll – first of all, you'll tend to work on too many things. You'll be trying you'll, – you'll get a whole bunch of different ideas, and you, uh, you get too – spread too thin, and, and nothing really comes out of it. But secondly, and that's where um, I found out, I spend time talking to our salespeople um, because they are with customers and some of them have some some good inputs. But a lot of times their input will be a one-off sales opportunity and it won't, it won't have the broad perspective that's going to be, that's really going to create a, a major product opportunity for the company. So I, I guess a part of that is you've got to dig deep enough into the particular markets you're going to be going after uh, and make sure that it is big enough. And then if it is, then really focus on that and only only work on a few things at a time uh, and really go really go after them. Put, put all your resources into a, the two or three bets you're going to make but on the other hand, if, if they're not successful, then be willing to uh, change course if it turns out that, that that's not the right thing to be working on. All right. So let's let's dig into a little, a specific example. So sample prep, I think, is a big thing for you all. And it's not the sexiest part of the analytical workflow like mass spectrometry or any other technology you want to think about, but it is a bottleneck. So what's been your approach there? 
Yeah, that's interesting because um, we, you know, we started out with uh, microwave and then it got us into sample prep for the elemental analysis. And the interesting thing to me was I'd go into laboratories and talk to people, lab managers, and talk to them about wh- where, what, what are your problems? What's, you know, what, what is, um, and all of them want to get faster um, turnaround time on their, their testing, whether it's for production control or for customers they're providing a service for. And so when I dig a little deeper in, well, wh- where are the bottlenecks along the way? Uh, almost universally, they will say sample prep. Uh, the second thing I noticed when I went into all these laboratories was the way they were doing sample prep was amazing in that it was based on 50-year-old technology or even older. Uh, a couple of the standard techniques that are still used in laboratories, one of them is 120 years old. They've been doing the same thing for 120 years old. And this was a little shocking to me when I would look at the sophistication of the instruments that are being used. But the those instruments can't do their job until the sample is in a form that it can go into that instrument and there's 130-year-old technology being used to get the sample ready, uh, and it can take hours to get it ready. So it was sort of obvious to me that there's something wrong here, or there's an opportunity here. Um, and so that's how we got into it. The analyzers, and the, that part of the market has been tremendously developed, mostly by your larger companies. They've done a great job in developing those analyzers. The sample prep was really overlooked because it, it's like you said, it's not a sexy area. It's not a, this technology area, but when you look at the, the whole process that the customer is trying to do, it creates a huge opportunity for us. And it's, we estimate in our industry, it's well over a several billion dollar market that's very fragmented now using older, outdated technology. And we have the opportunity to come in and really bring disruptive new technology uh, into this area. So to me, it it, it became sort of obvious once we once we saw all that, and and a lot of that was again being in laboratories and observing what's going on with the customers. I'm just thinking if if I were an entrepreneur in that space, you know, a different one than you're in, but similar, to look for those antiquated parts that are bottlenecks, the things that are less sexy because everybody's working on the big expensive stuff, but the small things that everybody has to do every day that can be vastly improved exactly right yeah and um and, and it it is and it, it made a difference we brought the microwave digestion in first of all and that that revolutionized the way people did elemental analysis now we're moving on to the molecular side which is about a 10 times bigger market and bringing the same value there. And it was an interesting thing there because a lot of, when people are doing molecular analysis, basically they're trying to extract extract certain things from the whatever they're trying to analyze, whether it be a food sample or whatever else. And that extraction process, very slow and laborious. And I was in, um, got up one morning and I was in the kitchen um, making coffee using these K-cup coffee makers. You're probably familiar with those where you put, put the cup in and push a button and in one minute you have a cup of coffee. Basically that's extracting things out of that coffee. And I was, it occurred to me this, why wouldn't a technique like this de-bottleneck that whole extraction process in a laboratory? And that's where our latest product came from. We call it a Q cup now instead of a K cup. And it's taken a five and six hour process down to a five minute process in a 
much more sophisticated. Obviously, we had to automate it and do a lot of other things, but the basic concept came out of that, uh, and, and it really was kind of thinking out of the box. Why, why, why couldn't we do something simple like this rather than what's being done in a laboratory? All right, so let's um, let's go bigger picture here. You started out small mm-hmm. in a garage, like you said. You went public, but eventually bought the company back. So, what has that allowed you to do? Um, it's allowed us to do um, tremendous things. When we were public, um, you know, being public, you have a lot of constraints. Obviously, as a public company, and you've got um, shareholders that you you have to um, you know be be concerned with. And, uh, and, and just a lot of the reporting and all of the, the expense of being a public company definitely puts constraints on, on the company, especially on smaller companies. And uh, the first few years we were public, I found it to be a very worthwhile endeavor. I, I learned a lot, spent time talking to analysts, and it really helped me think probably more strategically in some ways in running a company. But, on, but the downside was as we, as we went along the requirements of being public, I had to spend more and more of my time with talking to analysts and board of directors and things that didn't really directly relate to the to the company itself. And it also made you become, um, or the, in general, the company was more risk averse because to get things done, you had to get approvals. And uh, so it really constrained the company. And the third thing, and probably the main motivation for going private again was that I knew eventually we would be taken out by one of the bigger companies. That, that's the natural progression. And I believed in what we were doing and really wanted to remain independent and build a great company that, that didn't just become purchased and become a division of some much larger company. So I took the risk of trying to take the company private. And that's a, that's a difficult process, much more difficult than going public because you've got to get the board of directors on board and then you've got to compete against other um, companies that may want to buy the company. But I got us through that process. And once we went private, it was like a rebirth of the company because then I had I could totally focus on the the company itself and the organization and what, what was good for us long term. Uh, we could take more risk. We could do, I could decide pretty much whatever I'd uh, wanted to do as far as what I wanted to pursue, and we could, and we became a words we use are nimble and flexible. All of a sudden, we became much more nimble and flexible, uh, less structured, and I think it gives us a tremendous advantage being a private company over competing with some of the public companies in our um, in our space. And the larger public companies, most of the companies in our space are uh, are the the larger companies are public companies, and they're they're very good companies, well run, but I think we have a tremendous advantage and I'll even hear that sometimes from the executives of those companies because we can move a lot quicker and a lot more nimble. We don't have all the reporting requirements and a lot of the other things uh, that they spend time dealing with and the executives at the higher levels in those companies don't get to spend much time with customers and do the things that that I get to do that I think give us a tremendous advantage in, in being able to meet the needs of the market and be successful. Yeah. Buying back your company, that's another whole episode because <laughs> I'm just imagining like what if somebody, so first of all, they know probably that you're trying to buy it back. So they're going to jack up the price or they're going to look for somebody else who might buy it, their shares from them for more money or whatever. But yeah, so that's an amazing thing. But let's talk about, you know, the advantages of, having taken your company back. So for me, when I worked in 
larger companies in your space. The most frustrating thing for me was short-term thinking constrained by quarterly reporting. So in, in terms of marketing, are you able to how do you market your business differently because you can do that long-term thinking or, or do you? Uh, yeah, it, it makes a huge difference uh, in, in a lot of different ways. First of all, yeah, I don't um, have to worry about each quarterly result. I mean, I, we, you know, we, we definitely challenge ourselves to be successful, but I can take the long-term perspective and I can make investments and I can decide to try things and give them time to, um, to see if they really make sense. Uh, I don't have to, I can, I can make decisions very quickly. I can make a, a major decision in the hallway talking to somebody. We don't have a board of directors. I don't have anybody I have to go to and, and get things approved. And it might be people that don't understand the business as well as I do. So it gives me tremendous flexibility in, in doing that. I think it also really motivates the associates that work with the company because if you're a public company, you'll be constantly told that you're trying to create value for the shareholders. But uh, for employees in a company, that doesn't really, that's not really a motivator to them because they're, they may be a shareholder, but it's, they're kind of a minor shareholder. But in our company, what motivates people is we, we're all working together to be successful and to create. And success to us is innovating and bringing products to the marketplace that create real excitement with our customers and allow us to be the market leaders in the areas that we operate in. And the employees can relate to that more so than being a, a large public company where you're talking about sharehold, creating shareholder value, which doesn't really resonate with the, uh, the people down in the trenches that are doing the day-to-day -day work. So I think there's a real advantage. Also, we, we're not highly structured. We're nimble and flexible. We can do things for our employees that a public company might not be able to do. Uh, and everybody here knows that we're focused on the long term. We're not trying to do well, so we'll be bought out by a larger company two years down the road. But we're creating an enterprise here that's going to be more and more successful. In it, in, uh, and that creates excitement uh, in the people that are involved that this is something that they're going to spend their career here and be a, be a part of something they can be proud of. Yeah, that connection, that closer connection to the product or the company and making the impact in the marketplace when you you feel whether or not they're literal owners of the company or not, they, they feel a little more ownership than perhaps someone at a larger company who just doing their job and it's the company's product. Right. So uh, last question, what mistakes did you make along the way and what did you learn from them? First of all, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, you know, we've been overall very successful, obviously, um, as a company, but we have made a lot of mistakes. And, and I've actually got a, a little thing that hangs on my wall that says, don't be afraid to fail, because the only way you're going to succeed is to go out and fail. And if you're not failing, it means you're not taking risks, you're not getting out of the box enough. Uh, and so, so that's part of what you've got to understand and learn from your mistakes. Probably early on mistakes we made when we first started after we had our first product out, which actually did pretty well, we then were in this mode where we've got to come up with some new ideas and we've got to get into some new areas to grow. And so we spent time going off into areas we didn't really understand that well and going after some of those. And generally, we were 
pretty unsuccessful in those endeavors. Fortunately, we realized we weren't and we would back away from them. And out of that, what what came out of that was that the most success we had was to to really focus on our core competencies, the markets we really understood and technology we really knew, and go deeper and deeper into that and really create disruptive opportunities in those areas that we were already in. And that, that really paid off for us because we knew we were in areas we really understood. And I think it's like stick to your knitting kind of philosophy that people talk about. And it really had, it really did pay off for us. Uh, and we, that's when we started becoming more and more successful. There's a, there's a good marketing book that talks about blue ocean where you try to find you're operating in certain areas and as the, as competition comes along, you try to find blue ocean rather than that bloody ocean. Uh, but it still relates to what you do. And that, that has been um, very successful for us. Um, the other thing that mistakes that I've made along the way are people. You, As you grow, especially when you're smaller and as you grow, the finding the right people for the organization is one of the most important things you do. And, and it's you've really got to spend time on that and make sure you get the right people. If you don't, and if you don't get the right people, also be willing to make changes and understand that if it's not a good fit, take some action. And early on, I would tend to not do that. And I learned later, it's better for both parties if it's not a good fit to do something different. Nowadays, too, even though we've gotten quite a bit larger, any of the higher level positions that were looking at marketing or selling or engineering positions, I'm generally involved in the final versions of the interview process because getting the right people in the organization is the most important thing that we're doing right now. And and it's several things. One, you've got to get people with talent. I mean, that's a minimum that they're, they're talented people, but more importantly, that you've got to get people that are going to, that are going to buy in and fit into our culture in our organization and really become part of our organization and be comfortable in an entrepreneurial kind of a environment that's a fast moving, flexible environment. And some people are well adapted for that and some aren't. And uh, we've, we've worked very hard to make sure as we bring on the new people, we're finding the right ones. And, um, and we've been really successful. We've got, we've, um, been around a while now. So we have a lot of people that are with experience because once people, come here, they tend to stay here for the rest of their career. Our, our retention is very high. But we now, in the last five years, we've brought a number of younger people on the, the so-called millennial group, 25 to 35-year-olds. And um, we've, we've hired some great people. And the nice thing is we've done it in a way where they're really working with people that have been here. Those two groups are working together quite well. And the, the new people bring more you know, new energy and new ideas. But then they also... Um, benefit from the experience of the people that have been here. And personally, I spend a lot of my time with the new, the new younger people because it's, uh, again, it's good for all of us. And um, so we've, we've been, but the bringing the new people in, we've been able to maintain the culture that has made us successful, this entrepreneurial culture that's nimble and flexible, but at the same time, very focused on um, the things that we're going after. And uh, so it's, it's all come together. While you were saying that, I'm thinking one of the things that you must have done right early on is to establish that culture. And that must make it, even though there are people who don't fit, that must make it more attractive to the right people and maybe 
easier for them to see or easier for you to see that it fits because your culture is so strongly defined. Is that? Yes, very true. And uh, what I feel good about now is our culture now is strong enough. So if somebody comes in, they will become, they'll, they'll buy into the culture or if they don't, uh, it'll become clear and they're not going to change the culture. The culture is, is strong enough to uh, maintain itself. And we did go through a period there a number of years back when, as we started to grow, I kind of got this advice, and especially when we were a public company, that we had to, to, to structure up a little more and become a little more formalized in our processes. And we, we did some of that, and, and it, it clearly didn't work. We started to lose our true entrepreneurial culture. And I determined from that, even as you get bigger, you don't have to lose that that entrepreneurial culture based on size. Uh, we now have well over 300 people in the organization, and we still have that the same entrepreneurial culture that we had when we were first starting. And confident we'll maintain that as we continue to grow. And there's no reason you have to give that away uh, just because you become a larger company. I think some people believe as you get bigger, you you have to lose that or you have to structure to a point that will cause you to lose it. But we've, I, I don't accept that. And we've, we've been successful in um, not having that happen. And, and once you get your organization and the culture at that point, it, it will feed on itself and, and it makes it a lot easier to maintain it. Well, Mike, I know you're a really busy guy, so I really appreciate your time and your generosity sharing all that experience with us. This has been a joy for me. Well, thank you very much, and it's been a real pleasure to talk about it. It's my favorite thing to talk about, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to, to be able to have this discussion with you. So thanks a lot. Oh, my pleasure. That was a fun one. I hope you enjoyed that story, and I hope we can get Mike back someday to do those other episodes. There are stories all around us if we know what to look for. If your company has a story to tell, a podcast can be a great way to tell it. Does that sound like something that would help you build an audience for your brand? Email me, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. As always, I'd appreciate it if you'd share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. A rating and a review on iTunes would be a nice bonus. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. 